opposition before he went to India. It was in 1792 that he was pastoring a small Baptist church in Leicester, England. And at an associational meeting for his Baptist denomination, Carey preached a now famous sermon from Isaiah 54, where Nathan had us just last Sunday. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes, for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations. Nathan's sermon on Sunday was well received, rightly so, immediately so. I haven't cried that much in a sermon in a long time. Uh, Hopefully I won't cry that much in a sermon that I'm actually giving, but that's... (laughs) Anyway, it was a great sermon. It was well-received. Carey's wasn't. His sermon on Isaiah 54 was not at all well-received. He, he pled with his, his fellow pastors to look to the nations with the gospel and to send to the nations and for some of them to go to the nations. One senior minister interrupted Carey's sermon with this. Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do so without your aid or mine. Carey was undeterred. He kept pleading. He now famously said, Expect great things, attempt great things for God. The next morning, Carey was still grabbing the arms of individual men, literally, and pleading with them. Five months later, a missions agency was started among his association, the Baptist Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Among Heathens. And three months after that, Carey was saying goodbye and heading to India. And for his farewell sermon to his church, he preached from Matthew 28, 16 to 20. So Nathan had us in Isaiah 54, I'm sorry, on Sunday. For our Missions Emphasis Sunday, a pivotal passage in the plan of God, a pivotal passage in the history of missions. Tonight, let's turn to Matthew 28, another pivotal text in the plan of God, and hence a rightly pivotal pivotal text in the life and mission of William Carey, and hopefully for us as well. Matthew 28, we'll read verses 9 and 10, then we'll skip to the end. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. This is to the ladies. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." A familiar passage for us, 
One, I've never actually preached as a standalone passage. One, I'm excited to. I have three P's for us tonight. I'm not sure why I always use P's or so often use P's. The staff guys make fun of me for it. They, they said that I majored in alliteration in college with an emphasis in P's. <laughs> ha, 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 ha. I don't know why I see P's, but I, P's came to me today. Now, I'm going to take them in different order than we find them in the text. I would normally hesitate to do that, but I think in this case, it'll help us look first at what is most familiar to us, what are the nuts and bolts of the passage, and then we'll talk about what comes before that and what comes after that, because what's most familiar to us and what are the nuts and bolts of this passage are right there in the middle, but then there's this something before, there's this thing after that feeds into it in a powerful way. Here's what's most familiar to us in the middle, verses 19 and the first half of 20. We could call this Jesus' plan, a plan. Jesus gives a plan for his disciples to make disciples. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. We often call this the Great Commission. And one of the reasons that it's great is because it is greatly compact. It is tight. It says a lot. It means a lot. Its familiarity to us may cause us to rush through it when we read these verses. We need to go slow over these words to see the riches that are there, the power-packedness that is in this plan. So here's the basic structure of those verses I just read. And the structure's a little more obvious in the Greek. But make disciples is the main command. It's the main imperative. It's what these verses are about. And then there are three participles, ing words in English usually. And these are part and parcel, part and parcel with making disciples. There's going, there's baptizing, and there's teaching. So make disciples, going, baptizing, teaching. Now let's take each part of that at a time. Verse 19, make disciples, followers of Jesus. A disciple is a learner, a follower, an imitator. And that discipleship has a beginning that we call conversion, becoming a Christian, or getting saved in maybe popular church lingo. But there's something ongoing about being a disciple of Christ, right? It, it's, it's, a, it's a walk. It's a lifelong thing. We keep following him and imitating him and learning from him. Make disciples. That's Jesus' plan. To get disciples, to make disciples, to grow disciples, to make them disciple makers as they become better disciples themselves. And so verse 19, we've got go and make disciples of all nations. Go. The church in history has done a bit of a pendulum ride with this word go. So maybe you've heard messages on this passage where go essentially means, what are you still doing here? How come you haven't packed up yet, you comfy American? 
Get out of here. Go, go. And you felt bad about staying. Maybe you've heard a message or two instead that, that says this really means as you go. This is about life. It's as you go through life, make disciples. Well, which is it? Well, I think we're actually in danger if we cling only to one of those and forget the other. So yes, go. In the original language, that's a participle. It's not the main verb. Make disciples is the main verb, and it's going, comma, make disciples. In all your goings, make disciples. That's important. We don't want every one of us to go. I'd be the only one left, right? We don't want to all, we can't all go. It doesn't make any sense. On the other hand, we can't be too soft here. It can't mean in all your staying, make disciples. It can't mean that. So go. It's a command of sorts. Why? Well, because it's the first word in this sentence, and that means more in the Greek than it does in English. There's an emphasis put on go. It's hitched with making disciples. And they're to make disciples where? Of all nations. I mean, especially in the first century. You can't make disciples of all nations from your lazy boy in Galilee or in Albuquerque. At least some will have to go to make disciples of all nations. Some will have to leave home. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 10, that in the church there are as-you-goers who are senders. They speak for Christ, but they also send others for Christ to places where he's not known. But there are also those real goers who will leave, who will be sent, who will speak for Christ where he's not known. Romans 10, how are they, that is the nations, to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? The preachers are missionaries in these verses. And the preachers in these verses are sent, and that means there are senders. And that's how people believe. And when someone believes, they become a disciple. Again, a momentary thing when they're converted, when they repent and turn in faith to Jesus for the first time. And it's a lifelong thing where they keep being his disciple. And so Jesus gives us two ways of thinking about discipleship being discipled, what a disciple is, one which is an on-ramp for the Christian life, and one which is the highway of the Christian life. Do you see it in the text? Baptizing and teaching, one's the on-ramp, the other's the highway. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism isn't the means of becoming a disciple, but it is the sign of one becoming a disciple. It's a sign because in baptism, the person being baptized is identifying with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. They're saying, this is my utter hope, my only hope. And they're also showing forth that they believe that they too have been buried the old self is dead, a new self has been raised. 
They're identifying with all of Jesus and all that he is and all that he's done for all of them. And they're identifying with him for good. These new disciples, it says, are baptized in the name, or literally into the name, but not just the name of Jesus. Baptized into the name, notice, singular. Name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. How do you work that out? How, how, could, I, how could I say, in the name of Autumn and Caitlin and Jillian and William. Well, you could say, well, they're in the same family. They're your kids. But I don't know. I mean, I think this is a, a clear indication of the Trinity, an implicit indication of the Trinity in the Bible. This would be a, a decent, good, single place to go. you got Jesus being worshipped earlier on. right? You have him exercising divine authority. He, he's somehow through a spirit or himself present everywhere and then you have baptism in the singular name of the one God Father Son and Holy Spirit this is baptism then there's teaching teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you by the way can you see the old covenant as just dust in the rearview mirror Floating away? Where is Jesus launching this mission from? It's not Jerusalem, the old headquarters. This is Galilee, called often in the Bible, Galilee of the Gentiles. It's like a symbol of this thing going global. Circumcision? Where's that? That's so central to the old covenant, but no mention of it here. You baptize them. That's the sign. Mosaic law? Well, there's no mention of Moses here. Jesus has the authority to say, you do what I command you and all that I command you. So teach to observe. Learn yourself to observe all that he has commanded you. Every disciple is, is both a learner and a leader of what God has commanded in Jesus. You see, we're all still learners because none of us observe it all. We still sin. We're still learning. But we're all, if we're disciples, to be leaders, leaders of others in what he said. That doesn't mean every one of us is a pastor. doesn't mean every one of us is a Sunday school teacher. But it does mean in the body of Christ... We, as we said a few years ago at a Claris conference, we are one-anothering the word to each other. Every Christian is supposed to speak truth in love to each other. We're to confront, we're to rebuke, we're, we're to reprove, we're to help, we're to encourage. We're to learn. And we're to help others learn what Jesus said, and he has said a lot, and it's all applicable to us. It is not a buffet for us to pick from. Divorce, look at what he said. Lying, look at what he said. How you handle your money, look at what he said. 
Sometimes he doesn't give specifics. Sometimes he draws a firm line. Know the difference. Know what he said. And not just what he said in the quote-unquote red letters of your Bible, but know that when Jesus spoke these words, he spoke through the gospel writers and through the rest of the New Testament writers that followed. Those are his words. We have his promise that he was going to speak through them in that way when he talked to them in the upper room in John 14 to 17. That's how we know the whole New Testament's the word of Christ. Know it, learn it, help others, learn it, follow it together. Now let me try to put these aspects of verses 19 and 20 together to talk about the Great Commission as a whole. Because I think depending on your bent, it might be easy for you or for me to think of one dimension or one angle of this passage when actually we should see many facets of it. Here's what I have in mind. This commission was not just given to apostles. It was given to all disciples. How do we know that? Well, because it's a plan, look at verse 20, that lasts to the end of the age. Those 11 died a long time ago. This plan is still the plan. It's to reach all nations. Those 11 didn't reach all nations, and we're not there yet, so it goes on and on. Implicit in Jesus' plan is that there will be an unending succession of disciples making disciples who make disciples who make dis- Should I keep going? It goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Also, the commission that Jesus gives here is not just for someone else. For professional missionaries, for the people who are really good evangelists, for the bold, it's for all of us, every disciple. Disciples make disciples. Therefore, this necessitates that individuals will make disciples of other individuals. There's something implied one-on-one about this. One guy befriending another guy and eventually getting to, to getting down to business about what is most important in this world. Getting to Jesus. It's to be one-on-one. But it's rarely just one-on-one. The process for disciple-getting, right? Disciple-getting, not making so much, but getting. Conversions. That usually involves more than one person, and it often involves a church. I was thinking about it today. The majority of adults who were converted and then later baptized at Desert Springs Church, they had two things going on. They had a Christian friend who was talking to them about Jesus, and then they had this church that that friend was introducing them to. Invite your friends to church. Don't wait for them to get saved to invite them to church. This isn't the Masonic Lodge. The doors are wide open, and they should see what kind of weird family they're entering before they enter it. It involves a church. 1 Corinthians 14 paints this picture for us, where the whole church comes together. Picture this. An unbeliever or outsider enters, and here's the hope. He's convicted by all. He's called to account by all, not as they attack him, trying to convert him, but The congregation as a whole testifies 
and implies a conviction. And here's the hope. Then the secrets of his heart are disclosed. And falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Don't you just want to invite someone to church for next Sunday? See what happens? When someone becomes a disciple, they're baptized. We already talked about that. Note this, though, that they don't baptize themselves. They are baptized. Implied, I think, is that generally speaking, the church baptizes them because it's not just an identification with Christ or his death and resurrection. It is also an identification with his people. So you read things like in Acts 2 that those who received Peter's word that day, they were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Not to the cosmic church of Christ in, in the world, but I think it means to the Jerusalem church. And they devoted themselves then to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. How do you devote yourself to fellowship, to prayer, to doctrine, to the Lord's Supper? Well, one way is you do it together. It, ha it has to be together. That's what was happening in, in Jerusalem in Acts 2. A church was forming and it was growing. And that's what we see in the rest of the book of Acts. We do not see, we don't see evangelistic rallies where decisions are made and the evangelist flies on a nice jet the next day. What we see is a wealthy clothier, Lydia in Philippi, who overheard the gospel being preached, and she believes, and then her household believes, and then the Philippian jailer becomes a Christian, and so does his whole household. And the next thing we know, Paul is writing his most affectionate letter to a church in Philippi, because they're his greatest supporters, and they have a special place in his heart. We read on in Acts, and we find that Paul's preaching in, in Corinth, and people get saved, and a church is formed. And yes, they're one of Paul's greatest headaches. They're not a great church always, but they're a church. It's not a collection of Corinthian Christians scattered abroad. Paul preached a ton evangelistically in Ephesus, and many believed, and, and he stayed a long time. He stayed so long that they had elders, and it was hard for him to say goodbye, but he had to say goodbye to a church. The mission rolls on. It has to roll on. So yes, the mission is about people-loving. And it's about soul saving, yes, but the, the mission is also disciple making. And disciple making by nature means disciples with disciples. Just like bricks go together, so do people in the church. Just like sheep aren't good to be alone, they're supposed to be in a flock. So is the church. And like body parts, they're made to go together. And so is the church. We learn together, we grow together, and we send out together. We witness even together. We're not in this alone. That's all implied in Matthew 28. I wish I could argue my case better or longer, but I am convinced that is all implied 
or necessitated by what Jesus says here in Matthew 28. So the Great Commission is not the missionary's personal commission. It's not the individual Christian's private commission. It's the church's commission. And that great commission to speak up and to send out, to see new disciples made, to see new churches form and grow, that's the great commission happening. The great commission is being fulfilled when we send families to North Africa and we miss them and they miss us. The great commission is being fulfilled when we sheepishly invite a coworker to a Christmas Eve service. It's not advancing very far or very quickly, but it's, it is. It, it's happening, right? When we hear the word of God taught, the Great Commission's advancing. It's not just evangelistic. It's making disciples in that ongoing way. When we obey and obey better, the Great Commission is being fulfilled. The Great Commission is being fulfilled in, in all of it. Not in a missions budget, not in a gospel tract. In the whole plan, in our praying, in our giving, in our meeting, in our singing, in our baptizing, in our studying, in our baby making, and the baby adoptions, in all of it, our, our, our raising of kids. What is this for? For our own fulfillment? No, we have got a greater cause here. This is the plan. There's no plan B. Jesus isn't coming back with stage two. He's given us this plan. It's the plan. And how do we get this plan? Look back in your Bible, if you would, in Matthew 28, and look what came before this. This is the middle part. What did Jesus say right before? Well, he talked about his power. Jesus' plan before that, it was Jesus' power where the risen Christ declared his unparalleled, universal, divine authority. Remember, he's risen. Verse 16, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And they saw him and they worshipped, but some doubted. But Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So get the picture. Jesus is risen. They thought he was dead and that was it. But then Jesus gets word to the men. He called them his brothers. How kind. They just failed him utterly. Tell my brothers to get to Galilee, a hundred miles away. In faith they went. Imagine hearing from one of the ladies. Jesus says, go to Galilee. Hey, lady, Jesus is dead. No, no, no. Jesus said, go to Galilee. He's alive. I saw him die. He said, go to Galilee. He's alive. They go to Galilee. And then Jesus comes. They see him. Of course, some can hardly believe it for this moment. They don't know what to do with it. We saw him dead. He was truly dead. They put him in a tomb. Now I see him and he's alive. I don't get it. That's the doubt they had. But the rest of them worshipped. If it's not shocking enough that Jesus was dead and is now alive, 
then Jesus declares his unparalleled, universal, divine authority. Most Bibles say authority in verse 18, but the word is even bigger and broader than that. It has to do with power. It has to do with right. It has to do with authority, with laud. It has to do with honor. It's everything kingly. Or even better, it is everything divine. Divine. This authority, this power, this honor is over heaven and earth. It is in everything. It is everywhere. And it is all of it. All authority in heaven and on earth. What is an authority or a power if Jesus has all and he has it everywhere? Who has any of it? But it wasn't always his in this sense. Not in this sense. It it says, it's been given to me. Why given? Well, because this is Jesus' inheritance as the perfect son of the Most High and being God himself. Jesus is the obedient son, the atoning son, the sacrifice son, now the resurrected and ascended son. He's the victorious son. He's son of God and son of man. Do you remember that Jesus calls himself son of man more than anything else? Why, because he was so humble? No, because he knew about Daniel 7. For Daniel saw this, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, the father. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. That's the authority Jesus has in mind when he says, All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. Or as the Apostle Paul wrote later in Ephesians 1, that God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but in the one to come. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So this is the power and the authority and the laud that Jesus was addressing his disciples with that day in Galilee. And it was on this basis that he charged them to go and make disciples. All authority has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. You see? Authority is such a massive emphasis in Matthew. I wish I had the time to show you, but Matthew keeps showing us that Jesus has the authority to heal, the, the, the authority to forgive sins. He teaches as one uniquely having authority. He casts out demons with authority. He's the world's judge with authority. And now here at the end, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Therefore, let me tell you something. Can you feel the weight of this? Can you hear the charge, the commission 
addressed to you with this authority. Jesus has authority over your life. Jesus has all authority over your discipleship. Jesus commands you to do what he says with all authority in heaven and on earth. He calls you with that authority to be about his global causes. To send those who will truly go to the nations where he's not yet known. And to speak to those nations or hear on his behalf. He says to you, in all your goings, make disciples. He says to you, with all authority, the nations need to be made disciples. Some need to go. Some need to send. Which one are you going to do? Jesus taught us and instructed us with all authority. This word is given to us with all authority in heaven and on earth. And when this word is taught aright, God speaks again with all authority in heaven and on earth. It's not ours to decide what to do. It's not ours to cheat on or cut some corners with. We should feel some weight with this. We should feel some great conviction that he's charged us with all authority to go and to make disciples, and we've been so silent, so shy. I'm so slow to witness. Mm. But we should also feel some great comfort from Jesus' words about his authority here because he sends us on his mission and though it won't be easy, we go with all authority in heaven and on earth. It's like he's passed that authority on to us as his messengers. We, we go in his power, not our own. We go in his victory, not our own. We don't come to the world with a word from us. We don't come with our own wisdom and our opinions. We come to the world with a word from him Therefore, we can't be smug or proud as we represent him to the world. But on the other hand, we can't be sheepish. It's his authority. It's his word. But we must not be ashamed. In fact, we must call people to Jesus with his authority. That doesn't mean we should talk harshly to non-Christians. It doesn't mean we should be unfriendly or that we're not gentle or patient. But it does mean this little nuance. We don't really invite people to invite Jesus into their heart. That language is nowhere found in the Bible. You can invite someone to church. I'm not sure we actually invite people to come to Jesus we plead, that's a biblical word. We call with his command. We don't entice them with incentives that Jesus didn't offer. We offer salvation. Yes, offer is a, is a biblical word. How gracious of him that we can offer salvation to the world. But we call men and women to repentance in faith with his authority. So I don't want to do that. Well, this is his mission. 
We're his disciples. He makes the rules. He has told us what to do. Remember how he first called the disciples fishers of men? What an intrusive concept that is from the vantage point of the fish. Fishers of men, that's great if you're a fisher. Fishers of men. That's what we're doing. In all our goings, fish. Fish for him. You cast his line with his authority. Yeah, only he can reel them in. We know that. But he calls us to cast. And he calls us to get fishermen where there aren't any or where there aren't enough. This is his grand and global plan. It's with his grand and global authority that power and that authority is weighty and it's comforting. And here's an added comfort. Our third P, Jesus' presence. In verse 20 at the end there, the second half, we have a promise for his unending, unfading presence. And behold, check this out. I am with you always to the end of the age. All is all through this passage. You got all authority for all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I said. And behold, I am with you at all times. I mean, implied is a bunch of other alls. I am with all of you at all times, in all places, with all power. He is with you. That's how Matthew began his gospel account, by introducing us to this one to be born. The angel told that Joseph and Matthew 1, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. He was with them. Now he told them he's going away. They see him. He is going to go away. But behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. How is he with us and going away? Well, his spirit dwells within each. Each disciple is a little temple for the glory of God, a priest in that temple doing his servant work. It is better now that the Holy Spirit has come and that Jesus has ascended on high, and it it is still true that he's with us in his spirit. He is with us. What comfort for the journey, what comfort for the mission that he's with us. Didn't we just sing on Sunday? Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. He upholds us. Here we are. Perfect, unshakable, unmovable, undisturbed. Oh, no, no, no. We doubt, we worship. We fear, we go, we sin, we speak, but he's with us and he upholds us. He upholds us with his presence, with his comfort, with his strength. And and get this, 
He upholds us with his commands. He upholds us with his commands. Don't despise his commands. They're not burdensome, he said. His commandments are loaded with promises. They are life-giving. They are joy-producing. And here's one of those commands, a command that is so sweet. Do this in remembrance of me. It's a command. But oh, how we need it. Oh, what trouble it is when we forget it and neglect it. Paul, the Apostle Paul told told us in 1 Corinthians 11, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. See that? What Jesus taught, discipling, going on here, delivering to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Here's a command. Do this in remembrance of me. What a kind command that is. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. It's a command. Oh, how we need it. He didn't even specify about how often we do it. As often as you drink it, do this. Do it in remembrance of me. Do it thoughtfully. Don't just come up here and eat your bread and drink your cup and think this is some sort of magic potion. You remember him. You think on him. You meditate upon him. You call out again to him and know that he saves and that his blood was enough. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. It's a preaching to yourself and to those around you of what he did, what we need, and that we take it. So tonight, let's remember him. Let's think on what he did. Let's see again our need, completely outside of ourselves, Something he did, and it's done.